Hello, and welcome to episode two of On Liberty, coming to you live at last from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Alexander Downer, Australia's longest serving foreign minister. I'm very well, thanks. A pleasure to be with you. And thank you for your patience. Uh, let me lead off by asking you, how should Australia, quote unquote, and I'm quoting from your own article in the Australian Financial Review, manage the aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, it's going to be a, a huge challenge. There's no doubt about that, because first and foremost, um, very substantial benefits have been provided right. by the government um, to help people through this period. But those benefits will have to be withdrawn. I mean, quite apart from anything else, there's no fiscal reason to keep them in place. It would be impossible to do it. But I have to tell you, I think that will politically be a very, uh, a very difficult period. I think um, it will lead to a change in debate. So I've, I've written this before. There's been, uh, we've been through a period of huge prosperity the like of which right. humanity has never known. And so descended into a whole lot, of, and, and liberty as well, but after the Cold War, the great right. victories of the Cold War. And we have um, descended into, because we want to have debates, debates about all sorts of um, um, secondary um, and sometimes fatuous propositions. So instead of the triumph of the... Um, value, equal value of all individuals, we've gone into this extraordinary debate about identity politics and started to salami slice societies. Um, right. And I mean, it's actually quite psychologically damaging to do that. What right. the coronavirus has, uh, crisis has done is concentrate people's minds and suddenly realise, now hang on, what are we doing salami slicing society? We need to be getting together and working together. I think the well, second thing it's done is it, it has been quite damaging to multilateralism um, because mm -hmm. suddenly multilateralism, which seems all very well when you're having a lazy conversation about climate change or whatever it might be, um, um, and putting together sort of pious words on um, reducing poverty, when you actually right. want to get something done and suddenly you do have to get something done in this crisis, you don't, can't just have a few pious words. You do have to get something done. No space for virtue signalling anymore. You've got to do something. Right. Uh, the only people who can do anything are national governments. Um, and so suddenly we thought, oh, well, hang on. We were sort of going all a bit multilateral there. But the truth is the nation state is the absolutely, uh, absolutely fundamental foundation of our society. And we're reminded of that. So a lot of the ephemeral debates which have divided up society have been cast aside. The nation state is back. Multilateral institutions like the World Health Organization, the UN, have, been, have proven themselves to be completely irrelevant in all of this. Well, you're going back now. I hear you going back to your two weeks ago column, and you're a bit of a too much of a prolific thinker for us to keep up with here at CIS. I want to pin you down. You say the nation state's important, but 
What about the local state? Now, we had here in New South Wales, uh, Gladys Berejiklian, say that we have to stay in lockdown for at least six months, and until a vaccine is ready, everyone has to stay home. And, of course, Scott Morrison quickly slapped her down on that. Uh, you must have seen that. What's your take on that, the state versus the state, so to speak? Well, I mean, this is the uh, the problem you have with a federation. It, it, um, the, the gradual lifting of all of these restrictions will have to happen. That's uh, the first thing I would say. You definitely cannot keep people locked up here uh, month after month after month in this way. There are all sorts of reasons why you can't. Um, uh, the government can't afford to. Um, they've already spent $130 billion. Um, right. This is, this is a nightmare, right? Hermits um, and, and intellectuals who are pretty much the same thing. <laughs> Some academics, yeah. Yeah. Look, you wrote, you wrote this week in the AFR that the federal government now has to start thinking about its exit plan and sell this through the national cabinet to the states. And this seems to be the, you know, the federalism issue. What is this exit plan? And, and does it... You know, does the national government, does this, the federal government really have to sell this to the states or can it act on its own? Um, no, it, well, no, I don't think so. I think it has to be sold to the states. So I think it, um, there has to be, um, an, if you like, a national approach to it. I mean, you know, the problem is that the states have certain powers and the federal government has certain powers. And um, so they have to act um, in concert as best they can. Right. How do they do it? I think it, um, first of all, I think they need to do a lot of planning on how to do it. I um, mean, it's all very well to say um, we won't end the lockdown until there's a vaccine. Well, right. that, I mean, there may never, for all we know, there may never be a vaccine. Right. We've been waiting 40 years for an AIDS vaccine, and despite the billions of dollars spent looking for it, we still don't have it. Um, you, we don't we don't have a cure for the common cold. <laughs> That's true. Just be very busy. There's so, a huge demand for a vaccine against the common cold, but not one has never been developed. Right. I'm not saying it won't happen here. I have no idea. Of course. But, um, there is a point where socially people will not be able and not want to remain um, confined into their own houses or apartments. Um, there is a point where the money is going to start to run out. There is a point where society will begin to collapse. Um, and um, so governments have to anticipate this. Sure, if a vaccine turns up, if there's a miracle cure, a silver bullet, you know, um, a, a, a fairy turns up with a wand and solves all the problems, um, problems solved. But otherwise, there's going to have to be a gradual lifting of these restrictions um, and I think a real focus, a real focus on protecting people who are vulnerable um, rather than trying to keep everybody confined into their into their homes. Well, you've been in practical politics. Most of the rest of us haven't. You mentioned the fairy with the magic wand who would come solve all this. It, it seems to people like me that the fairy with the magic wand is the treasurer <laughs> opening up the book. I mean, it seems like there's unlimited money, uh, not just in Australia, but everywhere. I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars that used to be a lot of money in Australia. What... Uh, what are the consequences of that? Who's going to pay for that? Well, it's interesting that the Australian government um, still gets from Moody's a AAA rating, um, despite this huge increase in expenditure. That, of course, is because Australia's 
um, debt to GDP has been pretty small compared to most Western countries. I mean, um, in the UK, debt to GDP was something like 80, 90 percent. Now, I think 90 percent in Australia, what, 20, 25 percent. So in Australia, that's going to double. In the UK, that's going to double. Um, it's all going to have to be funded and it uh, will be funded through borrowing. Uh, governments obviously will be tempted to so-called print money. Um, that will be highly inflationary. Um, and, um, and frankly, I think we're just going to have to accept that the living standards that we had at the first, on the 1st of March, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean this around the world, on the 1st of March, Right, um, right. will not be achieved again for many, many years, will not well, be so, so do you really, do, do you really think it's that kind of, uh, you know, long-term, you know, kind of like the global financial crisis, which took countries sometimes 10 years to get back to trajectory growth? Or is this just a sharp, you know, everything's closed down for a month, everything reopens next month, we forget about it by, by winter? Uh, yeah, so this is the this is the hibernation argument. If you can put the economy into hibernation um, for a month or so, then um, you'll have a V-shape um, recovery. But um, but that's not, of course, what's happening. The um, weeks are going to start turning to months. As I say, in the end, the public will lose patience with all of that. But weeks are turning to months, and um, the longer you keep the economy closed down, or much of the economy closed down, the har harder it will be. Um, to start that, to start that up again. Um, well, well, you the, did right. The business community are increasingly starting to make these points. I just wanted to say, um, in the UK, the very impressive new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, has been making this point as well recently. Well, look, we really have to concentrate on ramping up the economy again pretty soon. Otherwise, um, it will take decades to rebuild the economy because so many businesses will just go broke. Right. I mean, you did write this week that we need acceptable criteria for winding back social isolation. What, what, what are acceptable criteria? What, what do you find acceptable? Well, I want to try to protect the vulnerable. Um, and beyond that, um, I, I don't, unless there is a cure to coronavirus, Unless the fairy turns up with a wand, um, then um, I think we'll just have to lift the restrictions on the community as time goes by. Sure, you'll get the um, infection rates, the transmission rates very substantially reduced. That's uh, already starting to happen. The growth is falling off very significantly here in Australia. In the UK, it's starting to fall off. Um, in other countries, uh, ditto. Um, but, I mean, you will reach a point, you will reach a point where it has fallen off substantially, but you haven't eliminated it. And um, I don't think you can eliminate it. I don't think you can eliminate the risk at all unless there is a cure, unless there's a vaccine. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Right, right. We had an interesting question come through the, the chat, which was, it, it, if every nation has a huge debt, who are they indebted to? And I'm going to turn that around because, of course, Australia borrows in Australian dollars. So Australia is not borrowing from other countries. If Australia borrows in Australian dollars, doesn't that just mean we're indebted to ourselves? I mean, isn't this just a, a distributional issue, not a, not, not, a, not, not a money problem? 
Yeah, Australian institutions buy uh, Australian Treasury bonds, but um, some of them are sold internationally. I don't know what percentage of um, somebody on the sure, sure. chat room will know what percentage of the um, Australian government's debt is held by foreigners, but um, it's probably in the vicinity of 30%, something like that. Um, so, um, yeah, um, we do borrow from ourselves. Look at Japan's right. debt. It's a huge debt, as a, I think well over 200% of GDP, um, right. and it's almost all borrowed um, just within Japan. But the government has to service those debts, Right, um, right. And the cost of servicing those debts is a, is a cost to the budget. That's money that isn't uh, otherwise otherwise spent on health or um, defence right, right. or education or whatever else government may want to spend money on. Right. I, given that, I mean, as a as a retired politician, I assume you're retired now <laughs> from politics. Politician. Okay, as a retired politician, well, you, you never know, right? The call could come. Uh, as a retired I'm politician, for that. You, you have this, you have an insight that, that hopefully you can share with us. How come, how is it that in ordinary times, if you want a hundred million dollars, like we're all ready to go, maybe. If you want a hundred million dollars for a pet program, that's a tough fight. And all of a sudden, if you want $230 billion, the money's available. I, I mean, how do you square that? Yeah, so um, what is, what has happened, you do reach a point, you do reach a point in government, I suppose is the best way of answering this, where you feel you have no choice but to spend the money and you worry about where you'll get it from later. Um, and this is one of those occasions, I suppose, the um, during the global financial crisis in a country like the UK, the country other than Australia I know the best, um, where the banks started collapsing in a country which is very dependent on being a global financial centre, um, the government had no choice but to pump money into the banks and into the economy. Um, and they were going to worry about where they would get the money from later. Well, that, they, that's something to worry about because they've had since then a decade of what they call in the UK austerity as the government's mm -hmm. tried to get its public finances back into order. Um, but that's what's happened here. I mean, sure, um, you might want a um, hundred million dollars to buy some new aircraft or whatever it happens to be for the government, and there's a big fight over that. But basically, the medical profession have come to the government and said this virus is going to spread. We're going to lose tens of thousands of lives um, as a result of it. I don't know whether though they are lives that might have been lost anyway during that period. Who knows the answer to that? Um, but um, you better do something about it. You better close down the economy. And if you close down, well, close down society, if you close down society, you've got to compensate people. Right. But to put things in context, by my calculations, Australia's uh, emergency spending for the coronavirus that's been announced so far is larger than all of China's spending on its Belt and Road Initiative for the past 10 years. Australia could be a regional superpower if <laughs> it was willing to spend a couple hundred billion dollars uh how do we square these priorities i mean if, if we can really afford this why doesn't australia decide to become you know spend a hundred billion dollars become the the regional hegemon of uh, the indo-pacific 
Yes, well, I suppose if we had limitless money to spend, we'd start by spending it on ourselves. Uh, it's it's rather like the question. Um, it's a good it's a good question because um, the political elements of the political left um, and the political left generally right. um, always argue for substantial increases in government spending, and they've got this new monetarism now where. Um, they basically argue that there's almost no limit to government spending. I mean, I often say, in which case, why don't we just give everybody, why doesn't the government just give everybody a million dollars and just say, sort of make whoopee? And um, and they would. That's not allowed anymore. Because <laughs> it's not allowed anymore. What would happen if, uh, if everybody was given a million dollars, uh, but you had the same number of goods and services in the economy, you've worked it out. That's what would happen. Prices would rocket up um, and the million dollars would overnight be meaningless and worthless. Um, and that's um, and, and one of the debates, which is an interesting debate to have, which we don't see much of, sort of goes to what you're saying, is what is the limit to the amount of money um, a government can borrow? What is the limit? Right. Now, I've seen the limit in recent years being reached um, when I used to work for the UN. I ran the peace process in Cyprus between the Greeks and the Turks. Right, um, right. Uh, and like everybody before me or since, it was a complete. I was completely unsuccessful. But what I did see while while I was there was the European financial crisis and the collapse of the Greek economy. Um, and Greece reached the point where they could no longer borrow any money. People right. would not lend them. Greeks would not let the Greek. Um, financial institutions money and nor would the international community and the government simply ran out of money right um, and that of course is a catastrophic situation and right. that's so that the limit can be reached is my point well let, let me ask you, you you're in a great position as the chairman of policy exchange to contrast Australia's coronavirus response with the UK's coronavirus response. Now, we all know that Boris Johnson has been in, in the hospital, and uh, I, I assume he's someone that you probably know very well. Uh, and, you know, we wish him well, at least I hope we do. Uh, but what about the, his government's response to the coronavirus? So it's, it's um, um, not much of an answer, really, to say this, or not a very interesting answer, but it's been very similar. Um, some would say it's slightly slower. I'm not sure whether it has been. Um, what they haven't done is close down their borders to the extent that we've done that here in Australia. Um, and um, so you can still fly into the UK and people are still flying in there. They didn't ban flights from China or anything like that. You know, London is the, um, I've often said this, London is the great capital of the world. It's where the world meets. There's no city in the world where people come to meet more than in London for all sorts of reasons. So the idea of sealing it off would be something that they could barely countenance there. That is a big difference, and that means um, more people are, of course, able to, more uh, people who are contagious are able to come into the country and probably have been going into the country. Right. So I'm not sure what the... Um, the percent is it, these figures comparing countries figures um, don't mean much because the um, depends who you test and how your testing regime works to, um, to establish how many people have coronavirus. But 
Um, I would say their situation is probably a little worse than Australia's, and that's, I expect, the reason why, that they haven't sealed off their borders to the extent that Australia's been able to do that. Okay. Now, we do have a question from uh, one of our watchers, Richard, who asks, what's so bad about inflation? That, that is, if, if the only problem of just spreading the money is inflation, why is that a problem? Yeah, well, if you, you reach, uh, um, again, um, it depends what you mean by inflation. If the inflation rate is 5% or 10%, um, it may not matter hugely. Um, if the inflation rate, as it's been in Zimbabwe or it was in Weimar, Germany, reaches thousands of percent, you have a huge economic meltdown um, where um, the monetary system effectively, well, ultimately, the monetary system will collapse. So all of these, um, it, it's a bit like the question of how much money can a government borrow. Um, uh, all of these, uh, the answers mm -hmm. to these questions is hard to be specific, but there is a limit. Um, so we know what happens if there's hyperinflation and an economy effectively collapses. Um, if you, we lived, I lived through the inflationary, stagflationary period of the 1970s. Uh, where you had rates of inflation of sort of 20% and you had interest rates up at the 22% interest rates and so on. Um, it doesn't make for a strong economy. No, and I might add that the research does show that inflation hits the poor before it hits anyone else. So, uh, you know, it, it's a problem at the, at the bottom of society even more than at the top. Well, yeah, uh, pushing up wages at a, at a mighty fast rate if you have high well, rates. Well, that's great for people like me uh, who are at universities. I'll get those increases, but uh, a lot of other people won't get those cost of living increases, and they're the ones who suffer most from inflation. Uh, look, let me go to uh, Gay. Gay asks, Australians are Auss Aussies. Sorry, Gay. Aussies are resilient. That just doesn't come naturally out of my mouth. Innovative, <laughs> innovative and agile. We pull together when all is lost. How much, how will this play in our recovery? Does Australian resilience mean that Australia is going to recover faster than other countries? Well, I'd like to think Australians are, are resilient and I, I'd, like, I'd like to think um, that we have these uh, sort of super qualities that may not be shared with other, <laughs> other nationalities because I am Australian. Um, but um, Australia, Australia, I think, has a... Um, uh, has has a real opportunity, by the way, um, here, if it can contain coronavirus more effectively and more quickly than other countries, and we can move from lockdown to um, uh, at least a, a higher degree of opening of our economy. Though it's going to be difficult to open it up to the rest of the world again, um, at least um, in terms of tourism and travel. I mean, the exports we can certainly manage. Um, but if we can get our economy back on its feet quickly because we've managed coronavirus better than most other countries and all the signs are that we, we have, we've had certain innate advantages, not just the quality of our people and the brilliance of our government, but <laughs> let, us, let us accept those as given. Um, but um, it is also because of our geography that we've been able to close off our country more quickly than other countries have been able to do. Um, if we come out of this faster, um, then our relative position to other countries around the world will be better. Um, so not perhaps in absolute terms, but relative to other countries, um, we will recover faster than they do 
um, and that will give us um, a sort of preponderance of influence that we might not otherwise have. Right now, I have a question coming in from a listener uh, that's very dear to my heart uh, because I wrote a book on the tyranny of experts. <laughs> and this 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 uh, watcher asks, you know, well, I, I'm going to paraphrase the question that the advisors to federal and state governments in this crisis uh, may have political leanings that are different from the governments themselves. You know, to what extent are governments trapped by the politics of their own advisors? Um, well, who would know what the political leanings of people like the chief medical officer um, officer are? I could, um, I hadn't even thought about the question of what his political leanings might be. I have to say he's uh, very reassuring when you see him on television. Um, Brendan Murphy, I think he's um, he's uh, he's very good, and the guy who does the same job in the UK is also very good. I think it's a different. There's a different point than their political leanings. Um, it is that they are doctors, um, yeah. so they have a focus on one thing, which is people's health. Um, you know, that's their Hippocratic oath. They've got um, an, a responsibility to do their best for every single patient in this world. Right. Um, and so, in this case, in Australia. Um, and so, there's in that sense, not to be, I'm not being critical. It's just an observation. They are single-minded. If you go to a general, um, a general is only really interested in military things um, and everything else is peripheral to military things. It doesn't matter who you go to, you'll always find uh, experts you go to, you'll always find their area of expertise is front and centre of their lives. Of course it is. Right, um, right. For a government, it has to make judgments um, way beyond that one that one specific area of expertise because it's got to balance so many other things and so here we have this excruciating dilemma um, where on the one hand we can save every avoidable death we can save them all um, uh, at least death from corona not death but death from coronavirus every avoidable death from coronavirus we can save if we completely lock down society we completely lock it down. The problem is um, that locking down society isn't sustainable, which leads you to um, a really, really agonising conclusion. Well, if you don't lock down society, then there are going to be some avoidable deaths. Now, a doctor will always say to you that is completely unacceptable. But for a government, they've got to think that through. Well, um, can we live with um, some avoidable deaths, at least avoidable deaths from coronavirus. Should we live with that? Could we ever make that sort of moral judgment? So I, um, I say this is uh, an excruciating moral dilemma that we have to live with. Don't right, you right. can't as a as a prime minister or a cabinet minister, you can't just listen to the expert in that area um, and ignore all of the other maybe we would call them unintended consequences of having right, just right. listened to that expert. Let, let me move to an area where you're certainly an expert, and that's foreign affairs. We've had a question from Hannah. The U.S. response has shown some real weaknesses in the U.S. system. Do you think China will exploit these vulnerabilities? Um, I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, I think within the U.S. system, it's hard to know because the media reporting we get here is um, invariably hugely critical of the Trump administration. And I think there is 
Um, there is a great degree of, um, if you like, partisanship in um, reporting of what, what happens in America. Obviously, they are wrestling with the coronavirus crisis. Now, I think the country which in the end, in time, in the wash-up of all of this, should there ever be a wash-up of it, mm -hmm. um, in the wash-up of all of this, the, t the country that is going to take the biggest hit is China. Because um, this did not start in the US. Maybe there are aspects of the way the US has managed it that haven't been very good. I'm sure um, you could say that of many countries, Italy or um, Iran or whatever. But, um, but the country where it came from is China. Um, and I think as time goes on, there'll be an increasing focus on that. The way the Chinese managed the initial outbreaks in Wuhan um, there were the sort of denials, the um, persecution of the doctor who identified right. it. Um, and um, then eventually, you know, as time went by, the Chinese started to admit what was going on, uh, by which time it was too late. Um, and there's that aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is what is it about China's biosecurity standards? Um, which is so bad that led to SARS coming from China and now coronavirus coming um, coming from China. If China, I mean, I've been a great advocate of China's engagement with the global economy and, 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 and we've benefited here in Australia very substantially from that, uh, no doubt about that. But, um, uh, you know, in the end, if China wants to engage with the international community, it must be responsible in the way it engages with the international community. And that means not being the source of viruses which lead to the closure of the, of the global economy. I mean, that's, that's completely unacceptable. And um, they, you know, in all of our countries, let's just take our own Australia, we have very strict biosecurity standards. Um, food safety standards in shops and restaurants and markets and so on. Uh, very strict standards and uh, the Chinese obviously don't. Um, right. They want to engage with the rest of the world, but they are put. They have put on this particular case, as they did with SARS, but this time to a much greater extent, they put the rest of the world at risk. Um, right. So there will be a real focus on um, not just China sending a few masks to Italy or whatever it might be, um, thank you very much, but um, there will be a real focus instead on how China rectifies um, these sort of problems that it's had in the past. Right, let me, let me chime in there that uh, the World Health Organization and its uh, Director General uh, Tedros Adhanom have been effusive in their praise of China, yet even with its totalitarian mechanisms uh, for in enforcing compliance, it took China three months to get the epidemic under control. Now, I'm not willing to pass verdict yet on the United States and Australia and see how long it takes us. I suspect we'll beat the virus in shorter than three months, that in fact, when this is all over, we'll prove to have had the effective response, not China. Do you see that as a possibility? Um. I don't, I don't think we have a clue at this stage. We just right. don't know whether that will be the outcome. But I have noticed the World Health Organization praising the Chinese. And, and you know, if you ask me, why would, that, why would that be a surprise? They're both in the naughty corner. Um, so <laughs> I've told you what I think about China and its responsibility for all of this. Um, but where was the World Health Organization? I mean, um, I personally... Uh, 
um, way underestimated how bad this uh, virus would be. Um, and some people were saying it would be, but many were saying it wouldn't. And, and one of the organizations, which is supposed to be full of experts, the World Health Organization said it wasn't anything, you know, it wasn't going to be a pandemic. Um, so the World Health Organization's turned out, well, you know, what they've said and what they've tweeted is one thing, um, which isn't much, but um, what, what they've done is pretty much nothing. Um, and it reminds us of how, how empty these organizations are. I mean, the World Health Organization has been very big in recent years um, talking about um, climate change and, you know, it, it's on to every woke issue that you could ever imagine. Um, but um, it hasn't been on to preparation for pandemics, despite um, getting the SARS issue wrong right at the outset and, uh, and, and its mishandling of the Ebola. It, 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 it very seriously mishandled the Ebola crisis. Right. Um, I mean, it, 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 just, it just doesn't matter, the World Health Organization. It's just a sort of grinding bureaucracy of, of nice-sounding virtue signalers, which is um, not able to help us at this time. Um, we need help from our national governments. Well, I'm going to ask you about grinding bureaucracy in just a moment, but right now, I'd like to remind people that CIS is a membership organization, and we would love to have you as a member. If you're not already a member, please do consider going to cis.org.au. Make sure to include the AU, otherwise you get an American immigration organization. Go to cis.org.au. I put the link down in the comments box. And we would really love to have you as a member, if you're not already. The friendship category of membership starts at just $40 a year. So, yeah, we really would love to have you. If you were doing an in-person event, this would cost you $40. Please just go become a member of $40. If you're already a member, of course, we appreciate your support. And the kinds of people you can support, if you'd like to make a donation now, are people like Peter Kurti. Now, Peter Kurti has come to us with a fantastic question for Alexander Downer. This is a really incisive question. I know you know, Peter. Do you think the response of federal and state governments to this crisis will have long-term implications for Australian federalism? Uh, actually, no, I don't really. Um, I know that uh, the short answer to that would be the um, very useful decision to establish um, a so-called national cabinet. Um, that, of course, is an extension of, uh, um, of, of what was called COAG. Um, COAG. The COAG process has been sort of okay over the years. Um, I don't think it will change Australian federalism really um, much at all. It's just, um, a, a, a rare, uh, not unique example of collaboration and cooperation between the states and the federal government. I mean, the they haven't always agreed with each other. Victoria and New South Wales have wanted to go much harder um, in lockdown than the, um, you know, than the federal government. The Victorian government wanted to ban fishing. Um, um, you know, the I think the New South Wales government has been pretty um, aggressive as well. But the circumstances of New South Wales are different from some of the other states. But I don't think, um, contrary to what a lot of people might say, that it will have many implications for the operation of the federal system at all. Right. The federal system, of course, is is uh, at the first uh, at the first level built into the constitution. So you're not going to be able to change that anytime soon, I suspect. 
Um, and secondly, there will always be the issue of money. Um, and the states will always say, well, we're responsible for hospitals, we're responsible for schools, um, but uh, where's the money coming from? Uh, where's the money from Canberra? We need Canberra's money to help us run all these things because we don't want to raise any taxes ourselves. Well, that is not going to change. That is not going right. to change. So, I think so, no. I mean, some people will think the establishment of the journalists will write. The establishment yeah. of the national cabinet is, is leading to a complete change to our federal system. I don't think so. I don't think right. it will have that effect. Now, you brought up money, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll chime in on money. Everyone knows we had some technical problems getting started this morning, and thank you for bearing with us. Of course, uh, a little extra money might help us solve some of those problems in the future. So I, I would like to ask people to consider going to cis.org.au. Obviously, not if you've lost your own job, not if you're having financial problems yourself, but if you're doing well, uh, the CIS could really use your support at this time. I know a lot of organizations are out there shilling for money right now. If you can ship in for CIS, help keep this program on air, uh, you know, I'd really appreciate it, and I'm sure the CIS would really appreciate it. So again, that's cis.org.au, or there are contribution links down in the description for the video. We have a question from Ines. Uh, Ines asks, do governments have the right to decide who lives and who doesn't just for the sake of the economy? Well, of course, the answer to that would be uh, the right to decide would be would be no, um, you don't want uh, that to be the case. But when you say just for the sake of the economy, as though the economy is just a lot of rich people making um, a lot of money, the economy is people's livelihoods. It's not, the economy is a term which um, basically de describes the whole structure of our society. The, the, right. um, so I think this is, this is the hard question the hard question is, if you try to save every single life from a disease for which we do not have a cure, for which we do not have a cure, and you try to save those lives by shutting down, not just the economy, shutting down society, what will be the unintended consequences of having shut down society? Yes, you're right. We do always want to save lives. If you ever saw someone drowning, you would try to save them. You always right. would. But um, if the consequence, if the consequence is that our whole society just closes down, unintendedly, how many people are going to die from other causes? Um, what capacity will we be? Will we have as time goes on to help people in hospitals? Uh, who have cancer or who have seasonal influenza or other diseases um, or who are injured in car crashes. What capacity will we have to save those lives if uh, we have closed down society? Well, I suppose they won't be driving their cars anymore, but, um, you know, what society, uh, what, what capacity will we have to do that? So it's, it's not a binary question like that. It's it's, it's good if you could think, um, well, should we have this lockdown now in order to save a lot of people who might otherwise die? I think everybody would say in answer to that simple but incomplete question, uh, yes, we should. But it's right. incomplete because you can't keep the lockdown going forever. And, right. and you don't have a cure to the disease. So right. what are you going to do? 
What are you going to do in that situation? Um, that is, as I've often said, the excruciating right. dilemma that we face. Right. Well, we might as well ask, should we limit all roads to 20 kilometers per hour? Because, of course, that would save lives. Uh, yet, we just to be able to get places faster, you know, we drive faster on, on the every, highway. Every day you get out of bed, you take risks with your own life right. in all sorts of different ways. But Edward would like me to push you a little bit more on the foreign policy implications. And he's asking, how do you see the balance of power in the Pacific after the virus? Back to that U.S.-China competition question. So I don't, um, I don't think it will um, lead to huge changes, but I do think it will lead to one change, and that is that the um, soft power, the soft power of China will have been substantially damaged. I think China's prestige and China's standing um, in the Pacific, um, but I think, um, you know, in the Asia-Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific region more broadly and elsewhere, um, uh, I think its its soft power will have been substantially reduced. I don't think in terms of hard power this is going to make any difference, although everybody's budget will be <laughs> will be a lot more challenged than it was before. Um, but I don't think it's going to lead to any particular changes there, but I think China's influence will be diminished and its status will be diminished as a result of this. And I wouldn't underestimate that. I think um, everybody knows that this coronavirus um, spread from Wuhan. Right. How, how it happened in Wuhan seems to be a subject of debate, which possibly doesn't matter, but it spread from Wuhan. Um, and, you know, it, it, it doesn't have a cure. So um, this is, the, and the, this seems to have been a function of poor biosecurity standards in China. Um, so, um, yeah, the United States has wrestled with it. And of course, it's very fashionable in elements of the media um, to attack the United States for whatever it does. Um, and obviously, you know, the Americans are completely incompetent and they're crazy people. And this is at least part of their, partly their fault. But in the end, most people aren't going to come to that conclusion. Um, that won't be um, that won't be where this debate um, ultimately lands. Right, right. Um, let me ask you about that you know, Wuhan coronavirus question, or as Donald Trump likes to call it, simply <laughs> the Chinese virus. Now, the World Health Organization has naming rules about you know not naming viruses after a uh, place or people, and those are understandable. Uh, yeah. Yet, uh, you know, at the same time, we don't have to do what the World Health Organization says. <laughs> many, many news organizations in January were simply calling this the Wuhan coronavirus until word came down that you know no no use COVID nineteen. How do you stand on these language issues? Should we be politically, should we let the World Health Organization settle political correctness for us or, <laughs> or China virus away? You know, how do you see it? Well, of course, it's rude to call it the China virus. So that's <laughs> the, um, usually politically correct people are people who are trying to make hard and fast rules so people aren't rude. And so I, I'm not in favor of being rude. Um, right. So I don't particularly want to be rude to the Chinese, um, but I want them to look in the mirror um, and think about how this started and how this could happen and think about it. And 
and show a degree of, everyone not going to express it publicly, but privately show a degree of humility about it all. Um, because um, we may not call it the China virus, we can call it COVID-19, if that's what the World Health Organization wants, I don't mind, whatever we call it in the privacy of our own homes. I think we call it coronavirus for some reason, because we're familiar with corona and we're familiar right. with a virus, so we can put those words together. We never met a COVID, we never met COVID-18 or 17, right, right, right. so we don't know what that's about. But um, we do know it came from China. And, um, um, and if the World Health Organization was worth its druthers, um, it would be investigating um, with, and it says it is investigating, but investigating uh, ruthlessly how this actually happened so it can't happen again. I think that should be the focus of their activity, not worrying about politically correct language. I mean, this is the thing with the World Health Organization and the UN generally. Um, they're sort of run by the left of the American Democratic Party. Um, that's how they, that's the Weltanschauung, um, the Zeitgeist. Um, I'm into German today. Uh, see, I was wondering if we're in, where we are. Ich habe Deutsch gelernt. So uh, we're into we're into the sort of zeitgeist of um, the UN, which is, and I've worked for the UN. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's it's the Democratic Party of the United States writ large, um, and so they're into all sorts of woke tropes and things. Um, um, and you know, spend a huge amount of time on trying to get language right and so on, so no one's offended. Um, in that, what they should be doing in the World Health, Health Organization is solving health problems. That should be their job. Now, I'd like to talk to you about wokeness at the UN and my own pet peeve at NATO uh, on a uh, yeah, even NATO on a, on a future on a future interview. But right now, we're going to have to wrap up. I do have one final question before I ask it. You know, please, everyone. You know, I, I may am flippant about it, but really, we could use your support right now. Not for me personally, for staff at the CIS who've had to make real sacrifices in order to uh, get through this uh, crisis. If you can contribute to hundred dollars or two hundred dollars, I guarantee you that's going right into making up for a staff member who has had to make those sacrifices in order to keep the CIS running. So please do consider it, cis.org.au, if you can afford it. I am personally going to get on there and give a donation myself, and I hope you will too. Now, Alexander Downer, thank you for coming on the program, but I do have one final crucial question to ask you, which is what does the coronavirus mean for Corona beer? This has to be the brand nightmare or the brand opportunity of the century. How are they going to play this? I'd be interesting to know how their sales are going. Um, they're probably <laughs> substantially up since alcohol sales have gone through the roof. Uh -huh. I was in a bottle shop in Adelaide the other day and they were telling me that their sales had been as good as Christmas. So, <laughs> um, and of course, they've had to, in Adelaide, restrict um, sales. Um, to individual customers because uh, sales have been so strong. So I assume coronavirus, I mean, corona, beer. Um, I assume corona beer has got the, <laughs> gone the same way. I say to people, buy Australian beer, though. <laughs> give, give us a plug for your favourite Australian beers. Um, Cooper's, pale uh, 
There we go. Thank you, uh, Alexander Downer, very much for your time. Thank you for bearing with us through these delays. Of course, not only have all of you listening been on this waiting for us to start, but Alexander has as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you, viewers, for your time. And thanks especially to our very hardworking, probably a bit frazzled right now, producers, uh, Max Hawk Weaver and associate producer Emily Holmes. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we will see you next week, or at least you will see us next week on on liberty. Thanks everyone.